very often. Or maybe one like it. Man, there is no place like home. But there's a difference. Because for David, home at this point would not be a place where he would think about the peace and the security and the time together with his family. Instead, home at this point for David would be marked by the unknown. It would be marked by fear. Because at this point in his life, the king is actively looking to kill David. But we've seen in the past few chapters that God has put his hand of protection around David. And he has used human means, like his friend Jonathan, to warn him. And even in the last chapter, to convey a message like, Hey, David, this is not a safe place for you to be. You need to flee and go into hiding. And so that's what 21 is going to show us. That's what we're going to start today, is we're going to begin looking at this period in David's life where he is on the run from Saul. And as we look at this narrative, as we look at this story, I want us to think, all right, how does this apply to me since I don't do anything like what David is going to be doing here? But I want us to consider how this text might apply to us. And the three things we'll kind of hone in on today are this, that Christians are to be ministers of mercy. They're to be counters of blessings. And they're going to be, we're going to call them refuge directors. Christians should be refuge directors. So we're going to read all of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. Don't worry, it's not as long as the ones in the past have been. But will you follow along with me as I read? 1 Samuel 21. It says there, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter. And said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. All right, we won't talk about him today, but file that away, because that's going to matter in the future. Verse 8, And David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul, he has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt, everyone bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't remain in the stronghold. Depart. Go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God. And he has given them to us because he loves us. And they are true. Christians are to be ministers of mercy. You know, if you're a believer, you can probably look back on your life and think of certain people who have really... Men who have really loved you well, who have really played a big role in your growth, who have really helped foster your growth and relationship with God. I've been really blessed. I've had a handful of those. A lot of y'all in this room have got to be that for me. But you know, as I think back over the course of my life, the person who comes to mind more than anyone is my mom. She, um, she's been one of my biggest influences when it comes to the faith. Because day in and day out growing up, I got to see what a faithful walk with Jesus looks like because of her. She is someone who has been faithful in prayer. She's been diligent in her Bible reading and Bible study. She has always been forthcoming with her faith, and she is unashamed to introduce Christ into any conversation. And along with all these things, she's also been an example of something else. She's been an example of what it looks like to be a minister of mercy to others. She has a heart for people of all ages, from little kids all the way up through the elderly. And she does practical things, like she's given people rides, she's done people's laundry, made them food, given money, watched their kids. There was even a family, whenever I was a kid, she administered to, and they moved away. They were trying to get on their feet, didn't have a lot of money, so they would call Collect. Y'all remember Collect calls, like, before everybody had a cell phone? So, like... You'd pick up the phone, and it would start, you have a collect call from, and like you know, it's like, oh, it's them. Where's mom? It's not like she was getting anything from this relationship, right? She is paying for, my parents, my parents are paying for this call so that she can minister to them. You know, whenever I was a kid, because I was a selfish, spoiled kid, at times I actually hated this feature about my mom. Because I would look at the resources and the time that she would invest in other people. And even though I was well cared for, in my mind, I'm like, that should be my time. That money could be spent on me as if I needed more things. And even though I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid, the older I've got, the more I've really come to love that attribute about my mom. And I'm really thankful for the example that she set. You know, in our text, as David begins to flee and try to figure out where he's going to go and what he's going to do, we see that someone ministered to him, that someone met the practical needs that he had, that someone gave an example to him of what a minister of mercy might look like. You know, whenever David finds himself in need, he has began to develop this pattern where once he is in need, he goes to God's man. Last time we saw him go to Samuel the prophet. And here we see he goes not to a prophet, but to a priest. Whenever he shows up, the priest is nervous. He knows who David is, because lots of people probably know who David is. And he finds it strange that David's by himself. But he still takes time and listens to his request. 
And the request is this, meet my most basic need. Now we'll come back and touch on some of the oddities that they have in their conversation, but for now, let's just focus in on this exchange of goods that they have. We may not find it odd that someone would essentially, like he goes to a church, essentially, right? And we may not find it odd that someone goes asking for food at a church, but back then, this isn't really the way it worked. So David comes and says, give me some bread, give me some food. And in verse 4, what does the priest say? He says, I have no common bread. All that's there is what's called the bread of presence. Now for us, we don't really care so much about differences in bread, right? Like we care if it's white or wheat, or if you're Tammy and Claire you, and Madison, you care if it's regular or gluten-free because you might die, right? But other than that, most of us, like we don't care about differences in bread, So whenever the priest talks about holy bread or bread of presence, it's kind of lost on us. But here's what it is. In the tabernacle, like their church at this point, right, there's three main pieces of furniture. We have the Ark of the Covenant, we have the golden lampstand, and we have this table for this bread. There'd be 12 flat loaves, and they'd be stacked up in two stacks. These 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They served as a covenant sign for the people, And they always faced the light from this golden lampstand. And they would say that it always enjoyed the light of divine blessing. These loaves are to be changed out once a week. They're to be changed out every Sabbath. But the old ones aren't just discarded. They're actually given to the priest. It's like part of their pay. But they couldn't take them wherever they wanted. They had to be eaten in a holy place. So when the priest says, I don't have any common bread, this is what he means. He's like, look, dude, the only bread that I have here is only supposed to be handled once a week on a certain day, only handled by priests, only eaten by priests, only when they're ceremonially clean, and only eaten in a holy place. He's essentially like, look, bro, everything about this is wrong. Like, you're not a priest. It's the wrong day. You're not staying in a holy place to eat it. Like, it, it's, it's just wrong. But he's going to give it to him anyway. He says, I'll give it to you, and I'll even give it to the guys you claim you're going to meet, as long as they're ceremonially clean. That's his part where he's like, as long as they've kept themselves from women, like sexual activity could make them unclean. He's like, as long as you've done that, you can have this food. You know, at a casual reading of this text, we might hear this and be like, that's just bread, it's not a big deal. But a little further study is like, oh, maybe this is a bigger deal than we think of it. It might actually lead us then to ask another question, not what's the big deal, but if this is such a big deal, is the priest in the wrong for just giving it away? Is David wrong for taking it? But thankfully, we don't have to get hung up on this question because Jesus actually answers it. If we go to Mark chapter 2, Jesus references this story. In verse 23 of chapter 2 of Mark, he says this, One Sabbath he was passing through the grain fields, Jesus passing through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? 
When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which isn't lawful for any but priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to him, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. As Jesus uses this story, he does so in a positive way. He doesn't condemn David. He doesn't condemn the priest. The priest isn't in the wrong, even though a casual reading might actually lead us to think that he was. If we look at the law just at face value, we would probably be tempted to condemn him for his actions. But to the credit of Ahimelech the priest, he had a reverence for God. He had a reverence for the law that God had instituted. But he was also spiritually discerning. He knew that the spirit of the law was the most important thing. He knew that God had given us the law to bring life to us. That's seen in places like Deuteronomy 15. And so with that in mind, he took the opportunity to show David a kindness. And his actions, as we've seen, they cost him something. If part of the way he gets paid is by taking portions of the sacrifices in this bread, like we would say in our culture, I'd give you the shirt off my back. He literally like gave these guys food out of his pantry. Do you ever give like that? Do you ever give to the point that like it really feels like it's cost you something? Or do you have a tendency to give out of your abundance? Like, I got a little extra scratch, I guess I could throw a little extra in. Whenever we talk about giving, it's really easy to be like, oh, the church pays you, you want more money, you're after my money. So, I'm going to do us all a favor. I'm going to Look, I'm not aiming for your pocketbook. Let's take this thought completely out. Let's set money aside for a minute as we consider our giving. Do you give of your time? You can think of it in the church. You can think of it outside of the church. Do you give your time to others to serve those who are in need? Are you like me? And you look at your schedule and you... You find pockets of time, you're like, nobody's demanding this. Nobody's demanding anything from me from 9 to 3 on Tuesday. You're like, this is my me time. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to binge watch something. I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to shut my phone off and go do whatever it is that I want to do. But then you find someone or something starts encroaching on that time. And your idol of self flares up because you realize, like, you want to serve yourself. You want to check out. You want to do whatever it is you want to do. I actually had this happen a few days ago. I was like, oh. It's like, yes, I know that you could really use this, but I want to do what I want to do. My guilt got the best of me, and I went and did the thing I didn't want to. But is, is that you? Do you see your time as being so valuable that you're unwilling to sacrifice any of it for anyone else? Is giving and serving others a priority for you? You know, mercy ministry, we see all throughout the Bible, is important to God. We see this in the life of Jesus, most prominently displayed at the cross. But think about the rest of his ministry. 
Like, what do we see him do over and over? We see him heal people and feed people. We see him meet the basic needs of others, even at times on the Sabbath. Mercy ministry was so important to Christ that he instituted an office in his church that there might be those who oversee it. We see this in Acts 7 as he institutes the office of deacons. It's one of only two offices in the church. It should point us to how important this is to God. We are really blessed here. Even in our small church, to have really amazing deacons. Those that oversee and care for our facility and manage our money. And maybe most importantly, help meet practical needs of those, not only in our church, but in our community. God has blessed these men with hearts that desire to care for people in practical ways. Do you know, just because they hold this office doesn't mean that the rest of us are off the hook. It doesn't mean the rest of us aren't called to be doing the same. Each of us are to be active ministers of mercy. So my challenge to you this year, look for areas where you can be doing this. Look for areas where you can be doing it better. And to us as a whole, man, I want to encourage us, man, let's find ways where we can better love and serve those in our community. Knowing ahead of time, like, it's going to be hard. It's going to cost us something. It is going to cost us time and money. And at time, you know, it's going to cost us some heartache because people are hard. Sometimes whenever we try to love people, they're going to try to take advantage of us. They are going to lie. Surely not. But does that mean we shouldn't help them? I think this is a question we often have, like, well, they weren't honest on their end. Does that mean we're out of, does that mean it's like a get out of help free card? And I think that our text actually speaks to that. Because what does it say? When David is asked why no one is with him, what does he do? He straight lied. Did he think there was good reason to? Maybe. Maybe he thought if someone came looking for him, it would give the priest, like, plausible deniability. Maybe he thought it made him look better. Whatever the reason was, he still lied. And a lie is always wrong. Should we be wise as we give aid? Yeah, man, we should. We should be good stewards of what God has given. But we should also remember that even as people look to take advantage of us, even as people lie to us, we should remind ourselves we are liars at heart. We are liars by nature. And Christian, despite that fact, Christ showed mercy to you in a way that you did not deserve. We see the priest was a blessing to David. And as he left, he left with the most basic needs met. Food to eat and a sword with which to protect himself. These things were essential for his survival. And as he leaves the tabernacle, he goes to Gath, which is the Philistine city where Goliath is from. And so this is like, this is not in here. This is me being curious and y'all can be curious with me. You wonder like when he strolls into this city that's not his and with this ginormous sword, technical term, do you think that maybe like somebody saw him and that's what gave him away? Like that's a big sword for that guy. Wait, I know that sword. That guy looks familiar. Like I wonder if that's the thing that tipped him off. That is nowhere in the text. This is just being curious. That's totally for free. Whatever it was that set it off, however he was noticed doesn't matter because he is noticed. And as a defense mechanism, 
he acts like a madman. Says he like lets his drool run down his beard. And whenever it talks about like mark, making marks on the door, it probably means like think how a dog marks his territory. Probably the same idea. And so the king is like, I don't want him around. Plenty of crazy people in my own town don't need another one. He can go. And so he sends out David. And here's where we see him become a counter of blessings. You know, in the church that I grew up in, we sang hymns. Lots of hymns. All the time. It was great. So a couple months ago, I got the opportunity to go back and lead this men's devotional for a group of guys. And one of the things they do in that time is they sing hymns or a hymn. And at the table I'm at, there's no books. But I'm like, I know this song. We'll see if I can stumble through. Hadn't sang it in 15 years. Every word. Recollection. I wish I could remember things that matter that much. But... There's a lot of songs like this. Some of them we sing here. Some of them are from when I was a kid. Like, I can sing every word, even if it's been years. One of these songs that's like this is called Count Your Blessings. If you grow up in church, you probably have sang it a handful of times. And this song talks about counting your blessings, not when life is awesome, not when everything seems to be together, but instead, count your blessings when life is hard. And during this period of David's life, despite all that he's enduring, this is what he does. Now, it doesn't, we don't find that in this text, but we find it in another spot. And it tells us that during this period is when David does it. In Psalm 34, which is the psalm that we've used for our call to worship, confession, and assurance today, it tells us that David wrote that psalm when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so he drove him out and went away. This is the title of it. So in the middle of all this is when he writes these words. And it's time of fleeing from his home country, being on the run from a king that's trying to kill him. At a time where he's being removed from his family and friends and literally having to act like a crazy person so that he's not killed. Listen to what he says about God. He says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. He says, the Lord delivered me. The Lord is good. He is near. He saves. He delivers the righteous from afflictions. He redeems and he calls him a refuge. Man, do you say words like that whenever your life is terrible? As God's people, we're in a unique position that we can be eternal optimists. Not about this life. It's not like prosperity gospel. Like, don't worry, everything in this life's going to turn out great. But instead, we can be eternal optimists about eternity. We, like David, are in a position to say that no matter the circumstances we face, we will be delivered and redeemed. Christian, your hope's not in anything here, but it is in the great and glorious future when we will be with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, reigning and ruling with Him. If you ever find yourself in a position wondering, how could I possibly praise God at a season like this? May I encourage you, mark this spot in your Bible. Mark 1 Samuel 21. Read about how terrible David's life was at this point, and then go read Psalm 34 and consider, in the middle of this, David wrote these words because he knew who his God was and knew that despite the fact that his circumstances were ever-changing, God is unchanging. It should serve as a reminder to us that we can have hope and count our blessings because our God is faithful for an eternity. Because David's God was faithful and because we serve the same one, we can and should be counters of blessings. And lastly, we'll see we should be what I'm going to call refuge directors. 
you know, whenever we are in need, oftentimes we don't know exactly like what to do, but oftentimes we know where to go. Like if you met, if you met a young family with about to have a baby or with young children that needed help with whatever, like, I don't know what to do for you, but you could send them to Donna. You meet a family who like needs food, right? Like you may not have the money to go buy them food they need, but you can send them to Miss Pat, right? Like you may not know exactly what to do, but oftentimes we know where to direct them to. You know, as David became an enemy of Saul, his parents and his family became in danger. And so as they hear where David was, they go to him. They're like, we don't know what to do, but maybe you will. And David, knowing that his parents are old and need something a little better than a cave, it's like, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to go to someone else. And so he goes to the king of Moab. Now, Jesse, who is David's father, he had a grandmother that was from Moab, some lady named Ruth, which you might have heard of. And probably because of this connection, he goes and asks, will you care for my parents? The king agrees that he will give them refuge. But the rest of David's family is with him. And not only him, but it says those in distress and debt, those bitter in soul and discontented, that they gathered to David as well. These were people who needed help and hope. And David would serve as a symbol of hope for the needy. And you know, because he was willing to take these people in, whenever he ascended the throne, he would always be a king that the people could look to and see differently. Because the people would know, like, that guy actually knows what it's like to be in fear of a king. He actually knows what it's like to be in need. He knows what it's like to have to ask for help from someone else. He knows what it's like to be one of us. You know, the New Testament tells us that as believers, we have the same thing. We have a king who knows what it's like to be one of us, who has known hunger and sorrow and loss and pain. David was a symbol of that to these people. But you know, he wouldn't look internally. Even though others were looking to him, he wouldn't look just to himself. He would look to others to help him. He goes to God's man again. He goes to the prophet Gad. He follows the instructions of God and instructs those that are looking to him to do the same. As believers, we have the same call as David. Point others to God to his instruction, and to the hope that can only be found in him. Christian, look, you don't have to have all the answers all the time. We look to God for instruction. We look to others in the church to help shoulder the burdens that we can't carry on our own. Ultimately, you and I are not the refuge that people need, but we are the ones that get to direct others to places that can help them, and most importantly, to the refuge that their souls long for and need. In our text today, we've got to see David, this mighty warrior, come open-handedly, be like, I need help. But not only ask for help, but then when in a position to help others, freely give it. You know, we as believers have been given the freedom to be open with our needs to not have to act like we have it all together. But we've also been given the duty and privilege of helping others wherever possible. As David came to the priest asking for bread, he gives him the bread of presence, which Leviticus 24 tells us is a sign 
of God's covenant with his people. It was something practical. It could be smelled and touched and tasted. Practical signs that meet practical needs. This morning at this table, we have set before us bread that is part of another covenant, a new and better covenant, the covenant that Christ has instituted with his people. And this sign reminds us that Christ is the ultimate minister of mercy, that he freely gave all so that we might have what we needed but could not attain on our own. This communion meal should weekly remind us of the innumerable blessings that we have been given and of the ones that are yet still to come. This meal should serve to direct us to the only refuge that we can find in this life. David looked forward to this Savior and Messiah that would come. And we, now this side of the cross, get to look back. Christ has come so that you may not only be declared sinless, but righteous. At the beginning, I called us back to a line in The Wizard of Oz. You know, in that same scene, there's another line. As the good witch tells Dorothy, this is all you have to do to get home. She utters this line. That's too wonderful to be true. You know, as we hear the good news of the gospel, that should be our, that should be our feeling as well. No. No, no, no. That's too good to be true. That the God of the universe would take on flesh, dwell among us, suffer and die, so that I might not only be sinless, but perfect? No, that's got to be, that's too good to be true. But the God of all eternity, who loved us unconditionally, says, yeah, of course you think that way. It is too good to be true, and yet it is. In the light of this good news, let us go from here with our ultimate purpose in mind to glorify and enjoy our God. And may this lead us to love others, but more importantly, to love our God with each day that passes. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Man, we thank you that you have given us these stories. Man, we thank you that you have shown the way that you use imperfect people. We thank you that you have given hearts to people who desire to love others. We pray that for each of us, you would grow that in us, that we would see and love others and that we would desire to love and care for them where we can, that you would remind us of the way you have shown us mercy, though we do not deserve it. Pray that as we come to the table, that we would be nourished, encouraged, strengthened by it, that you would remind us of all that you have done for us. Pray that you might truly remind us more as time goes, that you have created us with a purpose and on purpose, and that we might truly live lives with the goal to glorify you. We pray that as we do that, we would enjoy not only the life you have given us more, but that we would enjoy communion with you more. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.